All right, well, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, last week, Harry was preaching on the glories of our resurrected and reigning Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he actually referenced this chapter towards the end of his message, and so I thought I would pick up where he left off, and of course, he'll be back next week to continue for us, but 2 Peter chapter 3. While you're turning there, just a little bit of an introductory story that is somewhat unrelated to our sermon this morning, but I feel like it's necessary for me to share my Sunday morning frustrations with you so that you know that you're not alone if you experience these same things. Got up to Cornerstone just a few minutes later than I should have this morning because I was delayed by my own uh, my own, well, my own mistake. As we were driving to church this morning, my wife looked over, and as good wives do, she just noticed the fact that I was wearing blue pants and a black sport coat, which I had not intended to do. That was an unintentional error on my part. Uh, I don't have very good eyesight, most of you know that. Part of that is that uh, colors are a bit desaturated for me, and so I generally match up tags when it comes to getting things to match, and I failed to do that this morning. And so, in my ignorance, I wore a black suit coat with blue pants, which isn't the end of the world, but it is um, a bit of a fashion faux pas, and so... We made the decision on our way down to church this morning that we were going to repent, which means to turn around <laughs> and head back home, which we did, so that I could retrieve my blue suit jacket, which goes with my blue pants. I have no one to blame for the delay but myself. And, uh, and no one to credit for my coordination this morning but my wife. And I'm very thankful for her and her keen eye. And it is funny how those things seem to happen when you're like, we got to get to church. We got, oh, nope. We uh, wore the wrong thing. But I'm here, and I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 with you. And I may even reference my fashion faux pas when we get all the way down to verse 17 about avoiding the errors of unprincipled men. I feel like that's not quite a connection, but it felt like it fit the text this morning. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you all are here, and I'm excited to look at this passage of Scripture with you. Uh, the book of 2 Peter is obviously the second epistle that the Apostle Peter wrote. He wrote it to churches in Asia Minor which is modern-day Turkey, and he wrote it in the middle of the 60s of the first century of church history. And this was a time shortly after the persecution of Nero began against the church. And I know most of you are familiar with that historical event. In the summer of AD 64, there was a fire that broke out in Rome, and it destroyed or severely damaged 10 of Rome's 14 districts. So it was a massive fire that destroyed most of the city. And the Christians 
were blamed for starting the fire. Now, most historians, including secular historians, don't think Christians were actually responsible for the fire, but because the citizens suspected that Nero himself may have been behind starting the fire, he shifted the blame to the Christians and used that traumatic event as a catalyst and an excuse for persecuting believers. It was as a result of that persecution, and that persecution lasted for roughly five years until Nero died in the year 68. But during those five years, Nero persecuted the church, especially in Rome, violently. And we believe that the Apostle Paul and also the Apostle Peter were both executed during that period of persecution. And shortly before Peter died, probably just a matter of months before he was arrested and then executed by being crucified upside down, Peter wrote this letter. He actually wrote a couple of letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to the churches of Asia Minor, and he was encouraging them to stand firm in the faith. The first letter that he wrote, 1 Peter, is a letter to encourage these believers to stand strong in the face of persecution. In fact, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he talks about the fiery ordeal that you are about to endure, and he really is referencing the persecution of Nero as a result of the fire in Rome. And so there is this encouragement to remain steadfast and to endure in an increasingly hostile culture and environment. I think 1 Peter is especially practical for believers in America right now in Western civilization because we live in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to the gospel and to believers. And I know you know that because you check the same news headlines or are aware of the same news reports that I'm sure I get, and it seems like every single week the headlines just grow exponentially worse. And I don't know if you are all familiar with the Babylon Bee, the Christian parody website, but to be honest, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the parodies on Babylon Bee and the real news stories because things have gotten so out of hand and so ridiculous as our culture goes headlong into the death spiral of Romans chapter 1. So we resonate with 1 Peter in terms of standing firm in the face of persecution. 1 Peter was written as a defense against external attack on the church. But Peter also recognized that there was the threat of internal false teaching, that there would be those from within, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20, ravenous wolves. Jesus warns against false teachers in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but are wolves. And Peter warns then against false teachers in his second letter. So the first letter is about standing firm in the face of persecution. The second letter is about standing firm in the face of the internal threat of false teaching. How are believers to do that? Well, Peter is going to point them back to the truth of 
Scripture. And in fact, in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, in verse 12, he says, I'm writing these things to you by way of reminder. So 2 Peter is a letter that's full of reminders and remembrance to put into practice what they already knew from the truth they had been given through the word of God. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Peter says that as believers, we have all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of God that has been revealed to us. And then later in chapter 1, down in verses 20 and 21, he talks about how the source of that knowledge is the prophetic word, which is more sure than even our experience. And he's referring to the scriptures. So how do you stand firm in the face of false teaching? You ground yourself in what you already know to be true from the word of God. Then in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, Peter will warn specifically about these false teachers. In fact, he starts out by saying, in the same way that there were false prophets who arose among the people in the Old Testament, so also there will be false teachers who show up claiming to be from God, but in both their actions and in their words, they prove to be false teachers. Their actions, they pursue greed and lust, the love of money, the love of self, the love of sin, the love of pleasure. This is what characterizes these false teachers. And in their words, they speak arrogant things that go against what God has revealed in his word. That then sets the context for 2 Peter chapter 3. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's argument really flows around, it orbits around two primary questions that we see in this text. We're going to just briefly touch on the first of these two questions, and then we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the second of these two questions. The, The first question is actually a question that the false teachers themselves ask, and it's there in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 4. In verse 3, Peter talks about how these false teachers are characterized by mocking, how they're characterized by arrogance and pride and lust. Again, things that he's already talked about in chapter 2. And then out of that mockery, they ask the question about the return of Christ, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4. Because everything has just continued the way that it's always been since the fathers fell asleep. And that's a reference all the way back to guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These false teachers are saying, look, history has continued the same. Nothing traumatic has happened. And therefore, based on this assumption of uniformitarianism, we are concluding that Christ is never going to come back. So the first question is, where is the promise of his coming? And that question is explicit there in verse 4. And in verses 1 through 10, Peter really answers that question. He answers it in three ways. And again, this is just sort of getting us up to 
the main question I want us to answer, which is in verse 11. But in the first 10 verses, Peter responds to that first question, where is the promise of his coming, by offering really three answers. He begins by providing the biblical proof in verses 1 and 2 by talking about the fact that the return of Christ and the day of the Lord is all prophesied in the prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament. Through Jesus himself, a reference to what Jesus said in the Gospels, and through the apostles. So Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, all of it affirms that Christ is coming back. And in fact, just two weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord. And of course, to celebrate the resurrection is to celebrate along with it his ascension. And to celebrate his ascension is to anticipate his return. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. You say, well, how do you know? Well, Peter's first answer to that, 2 Peter 3 verses 1 and 2, is because Scripture promises that this will happen. And based on the Word of God, you can be absolutely sure and certain that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. It is prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus himself reiterated that promise, and the apostles underscore that same truth. Well, not only that, but Peter responds to that question, where is the promise of his coming in verses 5 to 7 by pointing to the precedent of the flood. So not only biblical proof in verses 1 and 2, but a historic precedent. Peter talks about how it escapes the notice of these false teachers that God has interrupted earth's history in a violently traumatic way at a point in the past in Genesis 6 through 9. You can read about the account of the flood and how God intervened to judge sin and wickedness in an unexpected and traumatic way. Peter's point is that there is a precedent for this, so the false assumption or faulty premise of the false teachers that everything has continued as it always has been from the beginning, verse 4, that faulty premise is immediately contradicted by the reality that at one point in human history, God did intervene and he destroyed the entire world by water at the flood. And so, verse 7, he will also destroy the world through fire in the future. Now, I know that our society has a habit of taking the flood and turning it into kind of a cutesy, cartoony kind of thing, right? Where we put it on greeting cards where there's, you know, an ark and a two of every animal, and we decorate baby nurseries with, you know, the flood theme and all of these kinds of things. I've never quite understood never quite understood that connection. Like, let's take the absolute worst natural disaster that has ever occurred on this planet and let's turn it into the theme for our baby's nursery. It'll be great. Peter's point... 
Peter's point is that if God has destroyed this world once in the flood, which again, massive earthquakes, floodwaters, typhoons, tsunamis, everything that you can imagine about the worst doomsday Hollywood epic, that all happened during the flood, and everyone on this, wor- on this earth, including every land animal, drowned, except for eight people and two of every animal. If God did that once at the flood, Peter's point is he can and he will do it again in the future, not with water, but with fire. So to the false teachers who are like, hey, where's the promise of his coming? Peter starts with biblical proof and then provides a historic precedent. And then in verses 9 and or 8 and 9, he offers the divine purpose for why God has delayed as long as he has. And Peter makes the point that God doesn't view time. <clears throat> God doesn't view time or relate to time the same way that you and I do. God is outside of time. God controls time. God created time. And God has ordained everything in human history to accomplish his perfect purposes. Peter quotes from the Old Testament there about how a thousand days or a thousand years to the Lord is as one day, just to make that point. And then in verse 9, emphasizes the fact that the patience of the Lord is to allow for all of the elect throughout human history to be saved. I actually think it's kind of cool to consider the fact that because Christ has not yet returned, all of us who know and love him in God's good purposes have been redeemed and incorporated into the church. And that's Peter's point. By delaying, God is accomplishing his saving purposes in bringing all of his elect into the kingdom. And so there is a divine rationale for the timetable. So Peter's response to that first question, where is the promise of his coming, is to say, no, 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 we know that he is coming. We know that he is coming because, number one, the prophets and Christ himself and the apostles have guaranteed it and promised it. It's a biblical promise, verses one and two. Number two, because there is a historic precedent for this in the flood. And number three, because there is a divine purpose behind his patience. We should view the delay as evidence of God's patience. Rather than being anxious, we should rejoice in the fact that he is bringing his elect into his kingdom. But what I want us to focus on this morning, that again was all intended to be introductory, what I want us to focus on this morning is really a second question that Peter asks in this chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 3. And that second question is, in light of the conclusion that Christ will return, that God will judge this earth, and that this earth, this world, all of the wicked systems that this world represents, will be destroyed, in light of that, 
what are the implications for how we should think and act? What are the implications for how we should live as Christians who are waiting for our Lord's return? Right? So the first question, verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? In light of the three reasons or answers that Peter gives to that, he reaches the conclusion there in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. It is certain, it is assured. It will come like a thief, it will be unexpected, just like the flood was unexpected by those who were alive in Noah's day, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now listen, Peter is simplifying the events of the future. In Christian theology, we refer to end times or last things using a fancy term, eschatology. Many of you have heard that term before. Peter is taking his eschatology and he's simplifying it for the purpose of making a point. If we were to look at the book of Revelation in, verse, in chapters 6, uh, really through the end of the book, uh, we would see that as believers we anticipate a rapture, meaning that Christ will come back and take us to heaven. That's talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's anticipated, I believe, in Revelation 4 and 5. And then there will be a period of tribulation on this earth, a great tribulation for seven years, and that's detailed in Revelation 6 through 16, really all the way through chapter 18. Then Christ will return with his saints and angels, and that includes us if we are believers. That's in Revelation 19. There will be a great celebration after he conquers the Antichrist, a celebration called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's recorded there in in Revelation 19. And then in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, it tells us that Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. It's called the Millennial Kingdom. There will be one final rebellion at the end of that, and God will judge the earth in fire, and then there will be something called the Great White Throne Judgment. That's at the end of Revelation 20, before God establishes a new heavens and a new earth the details of which are revealed in Revelation 21 and 22. Peter kind of takes all of that and compresses it into Christ is coming back and God's going to destroy the earth. But he simplifies his eschatology in order to make a profound point. And that point is really phrased in the form of a question in verse 11, which is the second question that Peter asks that I want us to consider as we think about how we live in light of these events from this chapter. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since Christ is coming back and God will judge the world, What sort of people ought you to be? 
right? So the, the first question, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Peter answers that by saying, Jesus is certainly coming back, and God will certainly judge this world. So then the second question is, verse 11, in light of that reality, in light of that future truth, what sort of person am I supposed to be now? What are the implications of the future reality of my eschatology, again, to use that word, how should the future affect my present? How should knowing what's going to come affect what I do now? What sort of person should I be? What sort of person should you be? It's probably 45 years ago now in the early 80s, maybe even late 70s, that a well-known Christian author and apologist named Francis Schaeffer produced a series of videos and then also a book with the title, How Should We Then Live? And really what Schaefer's point was, what he was addressing was how Christians in Western civilization, in Western civilization should live, how they should act, how they should respond as Western civilization and society grows increasingly dark. And that was, again, 45 years ago. I think if Schaefer were still alive, he would be amazed at how quickly our society has descended into darkness. I remember talking with one of my cousins. This was a few years ago. He grew up in a Christian family. And he said, you know, growing up, my dad would share with us principles from the book of Proverbs. And I remember thinking, I don't know why Solomon was considered so wise. I mean, the Proverbs just seems like common sense. Well, that's the result of growing up in a Christian home and being taught those things from a young age. He said this, though. He said, as I look around now, though, at where our society is going, I realize those things really aren't just common sense. That is divine wisdom revealed through the pen of Solomon. Right? We see even more clearly now than ever before here in our culture, the distinction between the wisdom of God and the foolishness of men. So as those who are living in a society that's growing increasingly worse, and as those who are anticipating the return of Christ and the destruction of this world system, how should we then live? What sort of people ought you to be? Well, I think Peter gives us five answers to that question in this passage. So I guess if you're looking for an outline this morning, it's sort of the five categories in which knowing the truth about the future should affect the way you live in the present. How knowing the future should affect the present in terms of what God has revealed about the return of His Son and His judgment of the world. The first of those would be what I would simply call the patterns of your life. The patterns of your life. How does knowing the truth about the return of Christ and knowing the truth about God's judgment on this world, how 
should that be reflected in the patterns of your life? And listen, I, I know that every generation of believers has anticipated the return of Christ. The doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return is something that has characterized Christians in every generation. But I got to be honest with you, it really feels like it could be really soon. I mean, there's stuff happening where you're like, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Our society is getting so weird. And then you introduce this whole AI thing into it. And you go, and, and, you know, Mars explorations and everything else. And it's just like, I think Jesus is coming back. I think he's coming back soon. If that's true, and it is, then how does that impact the patterns of your life? Well, Peter, at the end of verse 11, tells us, Right? What sort of people ought you to be? And the first category that he addresses right there at the end of verse 11, in holy conduct and godliness. And so my first question for you this morning, based on the implications of the text, is simply this. Do the patterns of your life reflect the kind of holiness and godliness that make it evident that you believe that the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return and return soon. And that the things of this world, the lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, that these things are passing away. And that those who pursue those things will fall under the judgment of God. I mean, we could get real practical when it talks about holy conduct and godliness, right? If someone was to hear the words that you say, if they were to look at the list of things that you view on the internet, your browser history, or they were to go with you to the movies or sit with you on the couch while you're watching Netflix, or if they were actually able to hear your thoughts or just examine your conduct, is this what they would conclude? Wow, that's, that's a second coming Christian, a Christian who's living in light of the return of Christ. That's a, that's a second coming Christian. I can tell because I can see it in the holiness of their behavior, in the godliness of their choices, in the purity of their devotion. Is that you today? Are the patterns of your life characterized by the kind of holiness that doesn't earn you a place in heaven, right? Works never gain us entry into salvation but rather reflects the fruit of repentance and the fruit of a transformed life that has been so impacted by the gospel that now out of that transformation flows the evidence of one who wants to please Christ. Have you made it your ambition, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, have you made it your ambition to be pleasing to Christ 
in everything. Well, Paul gives us, Peter gives us, let's get in the right book. (coughs) Peter gives us a second category, not only the patterns of your life, but secondly, your perspective. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, the patterns of your life? Also, your perspective. You'll notice verse 12 starts with the word looking, and then in Verse 13, we have again the word looking. And in verse 14, Peter will go on to say, since you look for these things. So this is about perspective in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Then verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So these verses are all about perspective. As those who are second coming Christians, that outlook, that worldview, that perspective, that mindset impacts the way in which we see everything around us. And you'll notice in verse 12 that it's the negative side of that perspective. And then in verse 13, it's the positive side. We're looking for, in verse 12, the destruction of this world and the judgment of God that will fall on the wicked. And then verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for, positively, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I love that combination of the negative and the positive because both of those things contribute to our anticipation for all of this to take place. I remember as a family going on road trips, especially when our kids were younger, uh, we would often go and visit my wife's parents up in the Seattle, Washington area. And if you've ever been up to the Pacific Northwest, it is absolutely beautiful. The trip was about 1,200 miles. It was about a 19-hour one-way car ride. The Google directions were actually really simple. It was get on I-5, stay on I-5, get off I-5. <laughs> but, but that simplicity did not at all account for many of the adventures that we got to have along the way. But if you've ever gone on a long road trip with kids, you are familiar with the quintessential question, are we there yet? See, you know exactly where I'm going with this. Are we there yet? And of course, as we you know, pulled north through the grapevine and then hit the Central Valley and you keep going north, you know, at first it's like the question sort of takes the form of, how long have we been gone? How many hours have we been going? And then as we get closer and closer, I mean, California is a really long state, but as you get closer and closer to the Oregon border, it's like, are we in Oregon yet? And then finally, are we in Washington yet? And how much time do we have left? And of course, one of the wonderful things about maps on your phone is you know exactly how long it's going to take you, which is also a negative thing. (laughs) Uh, We still have 13 hours. (laughs) But for my kids, on that car ride, 
there were two things that heightened their anticipation for us to reach our destination. On the one hand, there was the long, grueling, mile after mile frustrations of still being in the car, right? That's verse 12, right? We're still on the road trip, and it's a hard, long road trip, and there are frustrations, and there are things around us that make us go, are we there yet? But then, even more powerful than that for my kids was the excitement of thinking about getting to Nana and Papa's house, right? So that combined the negativity of the road trip with the positive element of finally getting to the destination, the joy of that, it contributed to an honest and genuine, are we there yet, question. As Christians, that's us. We're on the road trip. And the frustrations of verse 12, combined with the eager anticipation of what awaits us, verse 13, that anticipation forms a perspective that elsewhere we see in Scripture described as what we call a heavenly mindset. So if we're going to be second coming Christians, we need to have a perspective that looks forward to the return of Christ and all that that encompasses for us as Christians. Well, there's a third category of life that's impacted by these future realities. I call this our priorities, our priorities, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, Peter writes, beloved, since you look, since you have this perspective, since you're looking, verse 12, and looking, verse 13, and since you look for these things, verse 14, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him, by God, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, knowing that this world is temporary, knowing that it's all going to burn in the end, knowing that Christ is returning and that we will stand before him to give an account, that not only impacts our pattern of life and our perspective on life, it also impacts our priorities. And here, Peter is emphasizing the fact that your primary priority should be to make sure, verse 14, that you are right with God. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And of course, if there are those here this morning who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way to be found in the eyes of God, spotless and blameless, is to be covered by the perfect sacrifice the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus, who is the only spotless and blameless Lamb of God. And covered in His perfect righteousness, we then have peace with God. But then verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's a reference back to verse 9. Why has God delayed in order to see all of His elect come to saving faith. 
And we, as those who know and love him, get to be a means in that process when we are faithful to witness to our friends and neighbors and family members about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Kind of like Noah before the flood who spent 120 years pleading with people and preaching that judgment was coming, we as second coming Christians need to be faithful to extend the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us who are perishing. And, And I know I've shared this story before in Cornerstone, but I can't help but again think about John Harper, the pastor on the Titanic. Maybe you'll remember this story. In April of 1912, when the Titanic sank, there was a pastor on board. His name was John Harper, and he gave up his life vest and spent all of his final moments on earth pleading with fellow passengers on the Titanic to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And there's this cool story about how even after the Titanic sank, there was a man holding on to some of the floating wreckage who eventually survived and told this story later. And John Harper swam up to him in the cold waters of the North Atlantic and pled with him to repent and be saved. And he later, that man later told a group of Titanic survivors, I'm the last convert of John Harper. Because he was never seen again after that moment. He died, but he went straight to glory. So it ended well for John Harper. But for those of us who are on the cultural Titanic of what's happening in the world around us, we need to be like John Harper's. So knowing that Christ is returning and knowing that this world will fall under God's judgment, it changes our priorities, and it changes our priorities to think about spiritual realities first and to ask yourself the question, am I right before God? And then to ask yourself the question, what can I do to be a witness to those around me so that they understand that judgment is coming, but that there is salvation in Christ? Now, at this point in verse 15, Peter goes on to talk about how these truths are revealed as well in the writings of the Apostle Paul. You see there, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So he talks about how these truths are revealed in Paul's letters. It's a great affirmation of Paul's apostleship by another apostle, Peter in this case. And he also talks about how false teachers will try to twist the scriptures, whether it's the writings of Paul or other parts of scripture. Based on that warning, then Peter moves on in verse 17 to give us another category of life that we need to consider as we think about the the impact of what our eschatology should have on our present. That fourth category is what I call preparation. Preparation. 
So being a second coming Christian, knowing that Christ will return and that God will judge this world, it affects the pattern of your behavior. It, it affects your perspective and your priorities, and it also affects your preparation. Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what? Well, I think it's all of the above. Knowing that there are going to be false teachers who try and mess with you, <laughs> knowing that Christ is returning, knowing that God will judge this earth, knowing all of this beforehand, be on your guard. Be ready. Be prepared. Why? So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. This, by the way, is not a footnote. This is Peter coming back to the theme of his entire letter. His entire letter, 2 Peter, is a warning against false teaching and an exhortation for Christians to stand firm in the face of those who would seek to lead them astray. Lead them astray by either taking them into the lust and greed and immorality that characterize these false teachers or taking them into false forms of doctrine. I think of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Those are the two categories, morality and doctrine, life and doctrine, that false teachers generally attack. And here Peter is warning believers to be on guard, be prepared. And how are you to be prepared? Well, you're to be prepared by grounding yourself in the scriptures, which again was Peter's whole point. These things I bring to you by way of reminder. And then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, these are the things spoken by the prophets and by Christ and by the apostles. And then right in the preceding verses to verse 17, verse 16, the false teachers are those who undermine the scriptures. So how do you prepare yourself against false teachers by grounding yourself in the scriptures? Which I think forces us to ask the question, are we actively guarding our hearts by grounding our minds in the truth of God's word? As a second coming Christian, that's the kind of approach and preparation that ought to characterize you. Well, then finally, a fifth category is what I call pursuits. Pursuits. So patterns of behavior, perspective, priorities, preparation, and what you pursue. Look at verse 18. Avoid the errors of false teachers. And listen, just one, one footnote there on verse 17 before we move on. The world around us is coming at you with messaging that is entirely and fundamentally and intentionally opposed to the truth of God's word. It's coming after you, and it's coming after your kids. And the only safeguard against it is to guard your heart and your mind in the truth 
of God's word. I hope you understand that. Secularism is not neutral. Secularism is a false religion that is actively engaged in trying to dismantle and undermine and twist and distort what the Word of God teaches. And it's easy for us to see false teachers and think about something in the first century and say, well, I'm not really tempted by Gnosticism. I'm not really tempted by the Ebionites or the Marcionites or the Manichaean heresy. Most of you are like, I don't even know what he's talking about. (laughs) But let's just get real for a second. The stuff you watch, even on Disney+, Plus, the stuff you read, the things that are coming at you in terms of cultural messaging, the advertisements, even not the grotesque ones, but even the subtle ones, there's a worldview that is being presented that if you are not on your guard, you are in danger of being led down a path that will result in spiritual danger and destruction. So be prepared and be on guard. Okay, number five, your passions, but adversative, avoid the error of unprincipled men and instead Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Second coming Christians are those who are characterized by a passion, not for the things of this world, not for the passing pleasures of sin, not for the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh, but a passion to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter in 1 Peter talked about how these readers had not seen Jesus. He says in chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. And I love that verse because it pertains to all the subsequent generations of church history, including us. Though we have not seen him, we love him. He is to be our passion. He is to be our highest pursuit. And knowing that he is coming back to get us, and knowing that he will return to judge this world, knowing that we will spend eternity in his presence, that ought to fuel our passion for knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a second coming Christian? A second coming Christian is one who lives in light of the reality that Christ is coming back and this world will be destroyed. And that has implications for how we live now. 1 John 3, the Apostle John said that when we see him, speaking of Jesus, we will be like him and those who have this hope in them purify themselves. Eschatology is presented in the Bible never for the purpose of just being an academic dry exercise, a bunch of charts and that kind of stuff, never for the purpose of selling, you know, books, like Left Behind series and that kind of stuff. That's not why this stuff is given to you in the scriptures. It's given to us so that by reflecting on what God will do in the future, it will change how we live in the present so that we'll be holy 
verse 11, so that we'll be hopeful, verses 12 and 13, so that we will be diligent, verse 14, so that we'll avoid temptation and error, verse 17, grounding ourselves in the truth of God's word, and then verse 18, so that we'll pursue Christ as our highest ambition. One day, we will each stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that fact, how should that moment change every aspect of how you live right here, right now? as those who want to hear him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. If someone was to look at your life right now in the categories that we've identified this morning, would they say, that's a second coming Christian? Or would they say, that's a distracted or disobedient Christian? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us, both about the return of your Son and also about the reality that this world is temporary, it will not last, and it will be judged by you. Father, I confess that so often I myself am distracted. I lose sight of what's truly important but for each of us, my prayer today is that we would be those who walk by faith and not by sight, those who are characterized by hope and by holiness, not by worldliness, and that we would never sacrifice the joy of eternal reward and of pleasing you, that we would never exchange that for the passing and empty pleasures of sin. May our hearts and our minds be focused and fixed on you today. And we pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. All right, have a great morning.